Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 7, read through verse 13. Jesus here speaking says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for you know, the Father knows, what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please be seated. This is the word of God. Let us bow our heads in prayer and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful, truly humbled by the opportunity to come together this morning. What a reminder these songs of praise are this morning to us to speak of how we bow our knee before your Son, Jesus, to speak of how we are here to serve you, to serve your will for us, God. We pray that those songs might be true in our own lives daily. Might they not be simply words we sing on a Sunday morning basis, God, but might it be evidenced in how we think and how we approach our daily lives, God, that you allow us to live. We thank you for our time now to continue to explore this prayer modeled to us by Jesus Christ. We pray for your blessing upon us as we dive into a discussion on this concept of your kingdom, God. Might this morning be a time of great humility. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts, exposing sin that lies underneath God, exposing us to sin that we need to confess and move away from. Cause this time to be a time of great encouragement, a time of great fellowship, and ultimately, God, a time of genuine worship, recognizing that we are all your servants and we are here for your glory, God. Remove all distractions from our minds, of course, we pray, God, might even our attitudes now be glorifying to you. We pray all this according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we start this morning, and as we prepare to talk about this concept of God's kingdom, I want you to imagine, just for a moment, what your ideal life would look like. If everything you wanted came true, if everything you could wish came to fruition, what would that entail for you on a daily basis? For many of us, it would probably entail some form of financial stability, perhaps wealth, but if not wealth, at least enough to get by. A lot of us would imagine good health for us, for our loved ones. We might imagine a, a, a happier marriage, a perfect marriage where where us and our spouse always gets along. Maybe you imagine kids that always obey you, in case your kids don't always obey you, hypothetically speaking. We imagine a life where school isn't such a beating, right? where, where we enjoy class maybe and get, get the grades we hope we get and we get along with our teachers. In essence, most of us would imagine a life in which we get the honor we feel like we deserve on a regular basis. It makes sense. It's natural. Most of us assume that that perhaps we deserve more success than we see. We assume that the frustrations in our life are, for the most part, caused by other people's unwillingness to, to see how hard we're trying, to see what benefit we're actually bringing to their lives. And ultimately then, for a lot of us, this dream is founded on a desire of, of just a greater amount of self-rule. Many of us naturally assume that if we just had more control over our daily lives, and that somehow would would inevitably result in in greater benefits for us. 
If we had more control, surely our marriages would be better. If we had more control, surely our bosses would have more respect for us. Our kids would love us more. Uh, we would make more money. We would, we would be more successful in general. We assume that the key to happiness is, is gaining uh, more and more uh, control over our own domain, over our own destinies. This is nothing that's unique to, to us in this church. Obviously, we live in a culture that praises autonomy. We live in a culture that's obsessed with independence. We, we view all authority with a certain level of suspicion. And it's nothing new or unique to our American culture either. For since the fall of man, we naturally think that things would be better if we as individuals could just control everything. And oftentimes, sadly, our prayers reflect that same type of thinking. We we just want everything to work out in the way that we think it should be worked out. As we come to this next petition in the Lord's Prayer, however, we are confronted with a petition that is quite, ooh, quite shocking to our culture, quite countercultural to everything we are trained to think, quite counter to everything we naturally believe. For instead of praying for things like greater health, for instead of praying for, for just our own benefit in general, we very quickly are instructed to pray for God's kingdom. We're taught to pray for subjection, to be ruled completely, entirely by God, and not only us, but we're taught to pray that God's rule might be found in the life of every single man, woman, and child who lives. That God might rule totally and completely. In this request, then, as we'll see, we find something that is deeply humbling, it is deeply difficult to, to appreciate in our culture, but it is incredibly important if we're to, again, understand our own calling as believers. If we're to understand our own identities as children of God. And so my hope is, as we explore this theme this morning, we might understand better uh, about this kingdom. We might understand who rules this kingdom. We might understand where this kingdom is, and ultimately... We might understand this kingdom's implications. As we begin then, we begin by, by discussing who rules this kingdom. What rule are we praying for? And this is perhaps the most obvious of all. Again, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10a, we are praying, in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obviously, from Matthew chapter 6, from the beginning, we understand that the kingdom of God is a place of God's rule, of God's ultimate authority. And this is nothing new to the prayer that Jesus Christ himself instructs. For as we read throughout all of Scripture, we frequently find this imagery and this teaching that, that God is always intended to be viewed as our king, as our supreme ruler. You see this in so many passages, but perhaps most effectively, most powerfully, you see this image seen in the book of Isaiah. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is given a brief glimpse at God serving in this role. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read these incredible words concerning this vision, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. There, Isaiah speaking says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah here, who introduces this vision with with this reference to King Uzziah's death, in essence is saying, in the year of this temporary King Uzziah, I was caught up to heaven, I, I had a view of, of the real king, the one who's truly in power, the one that causes all of creation to tremble before him. This king, God, sits enthroned. This king is constantly praised, constantly worshipped. And so holy, so powerful is this king that Isaiah, a godly man himself, responds in utter terror and complete fear, for he recognizes how lowly he is. Isaiah is by no means alone in this understanding of God's kingship. You see the same role spoken of God throughout the Psalms. And throughout those Psalms, you hear David regularly describing the fact that that in God's kingdom, God rules clearly. And in God's kingdom, therefore, all of us, humanity and nature both, exist as his subjects, as his creatures, as those things that exist for his glory and that are entirely dependent upon him. This type of language is found Back in Psalm chapter 104, in Psalm 104, you hear David describe God in this sort of way when he says in Psalm 104, and beginning in verse 14, He, God, causes grass to grow in the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he might make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's hearts. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. Later in Psalm 104, verse 32-35, speaking again of this king, David says, He looks at the earth, God looks at the earth, and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. And let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Again, time and time again, the teaching regarding this kingdom of God that we're praying for is clear. In God's kingdom, God rules perfectly. God rules entirely. And everything else that exists is intended to exist purely for God's glory. Purely to worship Him. And so either you are worshiping Him, or as David says in Psalm 104, you are destroyed in His wrath. There is no in-between position to take. This is a pretty obvious and foundational truth regarding God's kingdom. And yet, obviously, in our own culture today, it's something that is so quickly forgotten. For again, we live in a culture where, where personal autonomy is praised. It is seen as, as a human right. It is seen as something that everyone deserves. And so, very frequently, you will hear people say that they have the right to do whatever makes them happy. They have the right to do whatever they feel fits best with their own desires, with their own dreams. Very quickly in that culture, the laws of God then are are, are just cast aside and people assume that that God's ultimate desire is for our happiness. These types of passages, of course, are entirely false. Something I can do with this mic? All right, I'll do that. Thanks, Jeff. Sorry about that. It added some effect to speak of God speaking and the earth trembling and me speaking. But I assure you it was not planned. 
But again, in, in our culture today, it is so easy for people to assume that, that our rights trump everything else. And our rights somehow take precedence over God's rule, but that simply is not the case. We are taught time and time again in Scripture that in God's kingdom, God rules perfectly. God rules totally over everyone and everything. And so as we pray for God's kingdom, we in essence are praying for God's kingship to be recognized. But this this is not enough when it comes to understanding the kingdom of God. For if we leave it in the Psalms, if we leave our understanding of the kingdom in these these vague visions of the Old Testament, we walk away with, with an overly spiritualized vision of God's kingdom. We walk away failing to understand that God's kingdom is indeed, in essence, it's a place. It is indeed a genuine kingdom in which God rules as king. And, and this brings us to our second question, the second point of, of the location of kingdom. And biblically speaking, that location is past, present, and future. All sections of this, every stage of this is, of course, key if we're to properly pray this prayer of Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this this future aspect of the kingdom, specifically this promised aspect of the kingdom. One of the most famous passages that addresses the kingdom of God is found in the book of Daniel. And if you turn over to the book of Daniel, turn back to Daniel, you can see one of these famous passages. In Daniel chapter 2, The prophet Daniel, the individual Daniel, is given an opportunity to interpret a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon. Babylon, of course, being a kingdom outside of of Israel, a godless kingdom. But at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over the people of God. And that king is given a disturbing vision in which he is seeing a picture of a great statue A statue whose head is made of gold, but as he scanned down the statue, that statue is made of other materials, of of bronze and iron and clay. And in the midst of this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar watches as a giant stone comes into the picture and, and crushes the feet of the statue, causing it to become obliterated, and it leaves him feeling quite disturbed. In response to that dream, Daniel is brought in with the opportunity to tell him what it all means, specifically what that ending means concerning his kingdom. And there in Daniel chapter 2, in verses 44 through 45, you see one of these examples where the kingdom of God is is vaguely referenced. Picking up in verse 44 of chapter 2, in the days of those kings, Daniel finishing up the the, the dream here, says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will will set up like a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The ultimate meaning of this dream, Daniel says then, is that someday, King Nebuchadnezzar, as great as your kingdom is in Babylon, as great as these other kingdoms are that will follow, ultimately... God will bring about his own kingdom. And this kingdom will be exponentially, infinitely greater than anything else the world has seen. It will crush everything that has ever existed. And it will be a kingdom that will have no end. It will be a kingdom that has no competitor. It will be a kingdom that is incomparable to everything else that we've ever seen. This interpretation and this claim, of course, would have been shocking in those days. For for the Babylonian Empire was massive. It was significant. It was awe-inspiring. And so for Daniel to claim that 
this God of Israel, this God of a nation that you've defeated would someday come in and crush everything would have been almost ludicrous in the eyes of the world. And yet Daniel says, this is truth. This is the kingdom of God. Someday it will arrive. Someday God will put an end to all his enemies. In a similarly prophetic way, just a a few books over in the book of Micah, Micah speaks also of this similar future foretold aspect of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And in describing that kingdom in Micah chapter 4, we read these words beginning in Micah 4 verse 1. Micah says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the host of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above the hills, the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, and even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Again, there's these future promises and prophecies regarding a day in which the kingdom of God will be instilled in such a way that everyone else will be forced to submit. That These other great and mighty nations that have their own power in Micah's day will be forced to submit to the law of God. They will be forced to bow their knee and confess that this God of, of Israel, this Yahweh, rules entirely over them. Later on in Micah chapter 5, you you see other prophecies that not only speak of the kingdom, but the king that will bring this kingdom into being. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, then he says, Must yourselves and troops, daughter of troops, they've laid siege against us. With rod they will smite and judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until that time when, when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And it goes on and describes this prophecy. But again, the teaching is clear. Someday the kingdom of God will come and someday it will be brought by this mysterious kingly figure who will come out of Bethlehem, who will come out of this, this people who are small, who are weak. We understand this prophecy, of course, to be that fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but for the time being, this prophecy remains similar to other prophecies of the kingdom throughout the Old Testament. That is, these prophecies speak of of simply this future day, this future great kingdom that, that will someday arise in which the Israelites will be freed, in which the world will find peace, in which creation, in essence, would work as it's intended to work. This was the promise that was constantly before the eyes of the Israelites, and it was that promise that was supposed to guide them in everything they did, guide them in how they ruled their own land. Of course, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you, feel, you find that the Israelites regularly lost track of that vision. This kingdom was quickly overshadowed by the desires of the world around them. Despite their own, abil- own inabilities, however, and despite their own sin, as you continue to read through Scripture, you see that the kingdom of God continues. And after many generations, and in fact after 400 years of silence between the the time of the Old and New Testament, this language surrounding the kingdom makes a sudden shift in language and in the way it's announced. For in Christ, we see that this kingdom is no longer a future foretold prophecy, but in Christ, the kingdom arrives. The kingdom is declared. 
This is again shocking, but it is clear from the very beginning of the New Testament. Just look to the words of the angel who visits Mary. And speaking to Mary about the coming birth of Jesus Christ in Luke, the angel speaking to Mary, describes the fact that this one named Jesus would be the long-awaited king. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 34. The angel says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and the kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In this announcement, then, you see the angel picking up on this Old Testament language of this coming kingdom, picking up the language of Micah concerning that king that would usher in the kingdom. The language being clear here, this is the Messiah. This is the kingdom that was long foretold. John the Baptist picks up on that similar theme at the beginning of his own preaching, in his own ministry, back in in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Again, all before Jesus even says a word. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, John the Baptist says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist is declaring that that his role is nothing less than preparing the way for the Messiah. Preparing the way for the one who who would initiate, who would bring into being the great kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, following in the same theme, also speaks of the fact that he is there to present the kingdom of God to all of those that listen to him. Jesus Christ himself regularly speaks of the need for repentance, tells them that the kingdom of God is in your midst, it is in your presence. You must believe, you must repent. Jesus then picks up on the similar language time and time again, and what ultimately we find in Scripture in the New Testament is that it's at the cross that this kingdom of God is ultimately secured. Paul speaking to that reality in Philippians chapter 2. I know I have you flipping around a lot, and it's difficult, but this is... A massive topic in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this concerning this role of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, picking up in verse 8, Paul says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Again, to many of us who are familiar with these texts, this this language is by no means surprising. But anyone familiar with the, the line of revelation throughout the Old Testament concerning the kingdom understands just how shocking all these claims are. For in the Old Testament, you have these grand visions found in in books like Daniel and Daniel 2 and and other prophets like Micah, Isaiah, other prophets as well, speak of these grand events that will come with the kingdom. They speak of worldwide peace. They speak of of this reality in which God's kingdom and which God's rule will be perfect. It will be complete in which every knee will in fact bow before the God of Israel. And you come to the New Testament. 
And you hear equally grand advertisements, grand declarations of the angels, grand declarations of John the Baptist, grand declarations of Jesus himself, all speaking to the fact that the kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. You must repent for everything that was promised is now coming into fulfillment. And at the beginning of these declarations, you, of course, have a great deal of excitement. You have multitudes showing up to hear Christ speak. You have multitudes showing up to see Christ perform miracles that display his kingship, that display his authority over all creation. But ultimately, what starts to happen over time? They die off. They start going away. And why is that? Well, it's because the kingdom that Jesus Christ initiates, the kingdom that Jesus Christ installs, doesn't look like the kingdom that they were promised in the Old Testament, does it? The kingdom that the Israelites expected was not a kingdom that would be initiated with a crucifixion. And so the people in the New Testament, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, had a difficult time understanding this this arrival of the kingdom. And yet time and time again, as you study this concept in Scripture, you see that the kingdom is declared as present in Christ. We, of course, understand, however, that that is not the end of the story, thankfully. For there is still this future element of the kingdom. And indeed, throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles, the apostles continue to proclaim that the kingdom is here, but it is not yet fully realized. And so Christians, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, are told to constantly look forward, constantly think ahead, constantly look to that which will be fulfilled, that which is spoken of over in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation speaks of that end of days. The book of Revelation speaks of the day in which the kingdom that begins in the Old Testament in prophecy, that begins in these these vague visions, the kingdom that is proclaimed in Christ, is ultimately fulfilled. And so when you get over to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19 and other similar chapters, you finally have these great realities that are described concerning the kingdom where God rules perfectly. Revelation chapter 21, for instance, speaking of that end point, speaking of that fulfillment, John is given this vision in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, moving forward. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It is in this final vision then that we see this this ultimate fulfillment, that which the people of God have always looked forward to. Now, oftentimes in our culture, of course, people will just jump to those final verses of of brimstone, of fire, of hell, and, and speak of how unjust this is, but ultimately... We who are familiar with the people, with the the word of God, understand that this is, this overall image is the most glorious hope we could possibly have. For it is in this final kingdom, in this final fulfillment, that God finally sits properly enthroned, not just in heaven, but, but sitting enthroned, ruling over everything. 
It is in this final kingdom where not only do we submit our lives to him, not only do we bow before him, but all creation works as it was intended to work. All creation glorifies him, and the beauty that was once seen in the Garden of Eden is once again restored. For there is no more death, there are no more tears, there is no more suffering, and all those who are wicked who insist upon rebelling against God are judged forevermore. This is the future aspect of the kingdom that we so desperately long for as believers. But it is not yet accomplished. And so throughout all Scripture, we're given this constant image of the kingdom of God, this image in which we are told, yes, the kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet fully realized. And as believers, oftentimes these images can bring us moments of great joy, moments of great hope. And and for instance, when we go to a funeral, we'll oftentimes hear people speak of heaven, and we'll, we'll hear of the beautiful life that exists in the future for us, and the beautiful life that our departed who knew Christ now understand. In the midst of suffering, we say, oh, but but ultimately it will be well worth it because ultimately God's kingdom will come. Ultimately, we will enjoy that life as it was meant to be lived. And yet, while there are times when we speak of that future fulfillment, when there are times when this kingdom brings us some joy, the reality is, for many believers, there is a lack of appreciation for how the kingdom fits into our daily lives. We tend to think of the kingdom purely in terms of that future life that we will live in heaven someday. But for now, we live in the midst of this tension where despite our knowledge of Christ, despite our knowledge of what he has done, despite our belief in what will happen, we can easily succumb to the belief that that his rule is somehow removed, somehow distinct from what we currently experience and, and what we currently know to be true. And so like so many people of God before us, like so many people in the New Testament, there's the constant temptation to profess with our mouths a a belief concerning the kingdom, profess with our mouths this belief of a coming glory of God, but to daily live our lives simply as citizens of this world, to live by man's laws, to live by man's own patterns. And as we do so, we fail to appreciate what the prayer is that's being commanded here in Matthew chapter 6. We fail to appreciate the meaning of the kingdom in our present state. And so that brings us then back to Matthew chapter 6, and it brings us back to not just the question of where the kingdom is, but a question of the kingdom's application. For ultimately, what we must understand when we pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, we are praying a prayer of submission. We're praying a prayer of of humility. We're being reminded of the true king that sits enthroned in the midst of a world that perhaps does not recognize his rule. And so as we come back to Matthew chapter 6 with all of that in mind concerning the kingdom uh, throughout Scripture, we understand that this prayer in essence entails three different requests that we are bringing before God. The first request concerning this kingdom application The first prayer is is a prayer of repentance. As we come before God in Matthew chapter 6, as as Eric introduced last week, in these first few petitions, we are forced to, to put off the typical tendencies we have as fallen humanity. For all of us tend to immediately jump to our own personal concerns. All of us have the natural tendency to jump to needs of personal health, needs of personal finance, needs of family matters. But as Jesus instructs us, this is not where prayer begins. 
Prayer begins first and foremost with an understanding of, of who it is that we are approaching. As we mentioned last week and already this morning, when we pray, we are approaching our Father in heaven and we are approaching the King of all creation. And so with that in mind, when we speak of the kingdom of God, we, we do so understanding that this requires a, a heart of genuine repentance, of turning away from our natural human desire to live lives driven by the desire for our own personal power, our own personal authority. This application of repentance is that which was constantly preached by John the Baptist, also preached by Jesus. This was the immediate point of application regarding the kingdom, that, that people were to repent. And so at the point of coming to God in prayer, we do so recognizing our sin and, and asking God to cause us to see that sin and repenting of the tendency we have to follow after our own rule, follow after our own glory. As we move from this point of repentance, we are also praying for obedience. Oftentimes when we think of, of this world, when we think of the coming kingdom of God, we again tend to, to jump to concerns of the world around us. We think of the kingdom of God and we look at the world around us and, and our natural tendency is to simply respond in judgment to the world. And so we pray for God's judgment upon the wicked naturally, I think. We naturally tend to look at the world around us with, with a heart of judgment, with a heart of, of shame. And so when we come before God and pray, we do desire that the world might submit, but we must understand, biblically speaking, our desire for the world isn't just that the world might be judged as wicked. Our desire for the world is that they too might come to know God as Father, and they too might live a life of committed service. This is a huge concern of believers, but of course this concern for submission does not stop with our understanding of the world, for when we pray for their submission, we are also praying for our own submission to committed service. Turn over with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. There Jesus again speaks of, of the commitment that is necessary for kingdom service, for kingdom citizenship. In Luke chapter 9, Verses 57 through 62, we read this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds have air, or the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Here in these teachings of Christ, we are reminded of, of the submission that, that is required for every citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And in a similar way to our response of, of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, when we hear the words of Christ in, John, in Luke chapter 9, when we hear the words of Christ in Matthew 5 and 6, all of us, if we're honest, must respond in any, uh, at least initially with the understanding that, that we oftentimes fall far short of this. All of us struggle to maintain this level of commitment to the kingdom. All of us have, have the tendency to look back after we place our hand to the plow. None of us and looking at the Beatitudes, are able to perfectly maintain a, a heart of humility, a heart that longs and thirsts perfectly for righteousness. 
And so anytime we read these words of God and anytime we pray this prayer in Matthew 6 for God's kingdom to come, then we pray it not with, not with an air of arrogance concerning the world, but, but with a heart of deep humility, recognizing that God's kingdom is a kingdom filled with the righteous people. It's a kingdom that's to be marked by God's own grace, by his own mercy, by his own purity. And as such, it's a kingdom whose citizens are to follow in that same way, in that same righteousness. And so as we pray for God's kingdom, again, we do so with the spirit of repentance, with this desire for committed service, recognizing that we daily fall far short. And we daily must be reminded of where our true hope lies, where true perfection is to be found, which is in God's kingdom where God rules totally. As we pray this daily, as we look around at the world at us in this light, of course, naturally, there will only be an increased desire for this kingdom. Naturally, there will be an increased disgust with our own sin, an increased frustration over what we accomplish in the flesh, but also an increased appreciation for what Christ has done for us and what he does for us on a daily basis in our forgiveness. And so as we consider this prayer, we must finally understand that it's not simply this heavy-hearted prayer of shame and guilt, but ultimately, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying a a prayer of, of constant longing. We're being forced to remember where our ultimate hope lies. This is the heart of of every maturing disciple. These are the words that flow from the lips of the person who is so entranced by the things of God, so in love with their Savior, that their greatest desire isn't for self-autonomy. It's not for self-fulfillment. It's not even for a better marriage or better kids. It's to be face-to-face with their Master. It's to have the opportunity to, in person, bow the knee and praise Him for what He has done for us. We see this mindset and we see this desire found throughout Scripture. Paul famously speaks of the fact that that he would much rather be dead initially than, than continue on in ministry, for he recognizes that to be dead is to be in the presence of the Lord, and there's nothing greater than that. Paul has an understanding of this, and John as well in the book of Revelation It is John that I think most perfectly mirrors this or or most effectively speaks of this desire. For in the the book of Revelation, that apostle, of course, is given this long vision of the end of the world. He's given this great vision of of warfare, of bloodshed, of of the wicked being destroyed, of trials and tribulations. But ultimately, he's given this image of, of God's kingdom being instilled. And having seen these vivid, incredible images, having heard Jesus speak of the coming days in Revelation chapter 22, we read this in verse 20. He who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. John's response there is, amen, come Lord Jesus. John here, like Paul, like all the true citizens of heaven, understand That their greatest hope, their greatest desire, their greatest moment of joy is not found in the present. But it is found in this end of days image where they are finally brought into God's perfect kingdom where God rules totally with no rebellion, with no wickedness, with no challenge whatsoever to his high command. As we pray this prayer then, 
we are forced to be brought into that same mindset. We are forcibly brought to the same point of humility where we recognize our sin daily, we recognize the needs of this world, and where we daily are left longing with this desperate cry for God to return, for his son to instill this kingdom perfectly. As we close this morning, as we consider this then, we must ask ourselves whether or not this prayer that Jesus Christ models properly reflects where our hearts stand before God today. Very frequently, again, as believers, we speak of God's rule. And we even speak of of the need for other people to submit. We speak of this glorious future of heaven, but we live as if those rules don't apply to us in the here and now. We live as if God's kingdom is simply a future realization that will someday just take us up and will just mean that we're happy and can do whatever we want for all eternity. But the reality is, this prayer has daily implications for us. And so if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, my hope is that you understand this prayer and and understand again that the reality is is that God rules on high. That his, His Son, Jesus Christ, is King over all creation. And regardless of whether or not that currently makes you happy, your only choice is to bow your knee and confess Him as as master of your life. And the Bible clearly teaches, unbeliever, that you will either do that now, or you will do that at judgment. If you do it now, you will be brought into eternal life. You will be brought into a proper relationship with Him. If you do it at judgment, you will do so and then be cast into hell for all eternity. There is no in-between position here. The fact is, regardless of how this world might look, God sits enthroned as king, and he must be worshipped. And so for any unbeliever who's here today, I I beseech you to consider the offer of the gospel that's in Jesus Christ. Understand that you, of course, cannot keep his law perfectly, but that Jesus Christ has kept it on your behalf. He has died and paid the, the wages of your own sin. And if you simply believe in him, you will be brought into his kingdom. You can be given this life. If you have any questions about that, as always, of course, please let us know afterwards, and we would be happy to discuss it. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that this prayer might eventually become the reality of all of our hearts. Even if we do not feel it in our hearts now, even if we wrestle with this difficult desire to rule over selves, might we pray this prayer daily as a reminder of the need of humility. Might it daily come off our lips, not simply as a present reality, but as a desire for what we hope to become someday. Let us daily pray that God humbles our hearts, causes us to understand that that the ideal state is not the state of our own rule, but is the state of God's perfected kingdom. Let us eagerly look forward to that day in which Christ will return, in which the kingdom will be fulfilled. But as we look forward to that day, let us live our lives daily with recognition that God's rules still apply, that we must live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him, and that we are called to preach the gospel of the world around us, recognizing that it is that gospel that brings people to repentance. It is that gospel that brings people into the kingdom.